This is an ABC podcast. La Goulou, the glutton, was also known as the Queen of Montmartre. She was the most famous can-can dancer in Paris and the star of the Moulin Rouge. When the Prince of Wales turned up at midnight to see her dance, she heckled him from the stage and demanded he buy the champagne. La Goulou made her fortune in the cabarets of Paris, but she was never interested in transforming herself into a respectable bourgeois matron. Instead, she was determined to keep earning her own money and provide for her family. So after dancing, she turned her hand to another profession, lion taming. Will Visconti lectures in art history at the University of Sydney and he's written a book about this remarkable woman's life called Beyond the Moulin Rouge. Hi, Will. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, so you're an art historian. What's the most famous image of this dancer, La Goulou? She is famous for appearing in the lithograph by Toulouse-Lautrec advertising the Moulin Rouge, which he composed in 1891. And the story is often that uh, people assume she was not famous before she was dancing at the Moulin Rouge and she wasn't famous before she appeared on the poster. But the reverse is the case. She was on the poster and at the Moulin Rouge precisely because she was already famous and she already uh, had a working relationship with Lautrec. They knew each other socially. Um, She was one of his muses for a number of years. She's so famous that her face isn't even properly shown. She's kind of got her back to the viewer. So, you know, her, her derriere, if you like, is Well, was more that more famous than her face, Well, Kind of, yeah. I mean, there were other artists who, who ran with the same theme of it's just sort of a pair of bloomers appearing out of a skirt and people recognised who she was. She was known as La Goulou, which is the glutton. Why, why did she have that nickname? She started dancing as a teenager and when she first started sort of appearing as a performer, one of the things that was remarked upon was her, what she referred to as her wolfish hunger. Um, So she had this great appetite and she was able to consume huge amounts of food and being called Lagulu also had all of these other kind of connotations. As you can imagine, gluttony and, and a great appetite, but it's not just... For food, there's this suggestion of an appetite for drink, for sex, for parties, for dancing, all the kind of pleasures of the flesh. And there are also stories that she um, got her nickname from emptying unattended glasses at the bars that she frequented. It was it was about her, her appetite, but with this kind of sly wink, if you like. So even when she was alive, there were all of these stories and, and almost myths, I guess, around her and her appetites and, and her performance. When you went to try to research her life and, and understand it, how did you go about trying to sift the, the truth from all of those stories and myth-making? The first thing that, that was absolutely central and, and actually kind of rewrote what I had assumed earlier was when I, I visited the Moulin Rouge and was able to consult their archives and they showed me um, surviving pages from her diary or, or what might have been sort of memoirs in in progress. And that completely reshaped what what I had understood about her. So, you know, talking about her her appetite, she wrote about her childhood and sort of growing up in in poverty in a bit of a rough neighbourhood and how she was determined to get out and become a star. So there's this idea of making the most of everything while the opportunity was available because she had grown up with so little. What is it like to visit the archives at at the Moulin Rouge? Do they have a kind of sedate library there or, or what's the room like? It wasn't anything particularly fancy. I was using people's offices. I mean, admittedly, they had you know offices where there are kind of feathered headdresses <laughs> and photos on the walls and, you know, uh, sequins and all that sort of thing in, and- you know, poking out. But, um, you know, it, it's not a massive archive because the other thing is uh, there was a fire in 1915. So, you know, material was lost then and, and just sort of o- over time, but yeah, I, I was really just sort of sitting sitting in somebody's office and and poring over these uh, diary pages. And was... were they the originals that you were able to see there, Will? Yes. How um, incredible! What, what's her handwriting look like? It's a little sloppy, um, but 
it's always a fascinating thing to be able to see something that's written in the hand of the person that that, uh, one is studying, but also just being able to read it um, and get a sense of her voice or her approach because in her writing she doesn't emote a great deal. Um, It's sort of interesting the few occasions when she does. You know, it's things like when her mother died, but often it was very kind of simple, very practical. So she became famous as La Goulou, the glutton. What name was she christened when she was born? She was born Louise Weber um, in Clichy, on the outskirts of Paris, and she was born a little bit before what became Bastille Day in 1866. What kind of neighbourhood was she raised in? It was not affluent by any means. Uh, it was a, a working class district. And at the time, it also was sometimes associated with criminality and vice and sort of one of those places that, that a, a person didn't really want to be walking alone after dark. There were a few sort of local toughs, one of whom had threatened her. There had been murders committed by, by some of the neighbours and there were often uh, homeless people who kind of congregated nearby and she recognised some of them by name and she knew that one of them had been a famous singer and so on. And seeing all of that around her, she very explicitly said in her diary that that was one of the things that made her set her mind to becoming a star and uh, getting out, not dissimilar to some performers that we see today. You know, they, they want to get out of poverty by, by becoming famous performers. What sort of stories are there about her as a little girl, Will? I mean, was she a child who loved to dance? If we think about her dancing as, as a creative thing rather than, than also the uh, way to make money, which it becomes as she gets older, but are there stories of her loving to dance as a little kid? Yeah, absolutely. She loved to dance. She was always finding time, finding the chance to 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 dance. You know, it was after everybody else had gone to bed, she used to dance in her room. She used to sort of strike poses and scrutinise herself in the mirror. Her mother taught her how to waltz. And so uh, she, she, even though she sort of only came up to her mother's waist, they used to dance at, at home. And there were street musicians, travelling musicians, that used to go through the neighbourhood and she used to sit and listen to them or she was allowed to go out and sort of dance in the street while there was music playing. Her mother worked as a laundress and from a young age, Louise worked alongside her. What would have that been like back then? Very hard work for very little pay. Women were um, not paid as much as men, for starters. So in a week's work, uh, and this is working maybe a six, six and a half day week, they could earn maybe between two and three francs where a man might earn five or, or more. But, you know, it was um, to work in a laundry was really physically demanding. Um, the process of kind of washing and wringing out and, and all bent over a communal wash basin and working kind of from dawn till dusk and, and potentially beyond. But it, w- it was also very much kind of a, a group effort. Everybody sort of also jostling for space to be able to do the washing and the mangling and and so on. So uh, from really quite a young age, uh, Louise is slaving all day in a a sink full of dirty clothes. This was was her working life. What was there around for her to do for fun? She started going to dance halls, public dance halls, when she was 13. That was when she first sort of started to sneak out. And, you know, it's the equivalent these days of a 13-year-old kind of going clubbing, I suppose, There were uh, public dance halls that were open to working class people, um, places like Montmartre and the outskirts of of Paris. There were were open air dance halls. So there there was music and and a dance floor and, and kind of like a sort of beer garden type of space. And she made the jump from being just kind of a gifted amateur and, and a, a personality who was recognisable to then being engaged as a paid dancer. In the early days, Will, where would a poor laundress get the clothes to wear out to a dance hall? They borrowed them from uh, from the washing pile. So... <laughs> So the stories uh, about dry cleaners are true. What she'd she'd take off in one of the good outfits that she was meant to be washing for somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, I, I 
don't know if that sort of meant more work before or after <laughs> with, with the washing, but this isn't an isolated thing. Um, the laundresses in Paris, there were a lot of sort of different parties and feast days and things like for, for Lent and, and Mardi Gras and so on. And there was one kind of party where the, the laundresses kind of got to dress up in costume and part of the joke was uh, wearing borrowed finery. But yeah, that was also <laughs> one way that she used to sort of pretty herself, she could have prettied herself up a little bit. What kind of behaviour marked out her dancing really right from the start? What sort of performer was she? So apart from her appetite, she was uh, she was a real sort of force of nature in terms of the energy with which she danced. It's often described as sort of instinctive and vital and she, she used to sort of pick up speed as she danced and she... Could, you know, other people sort of struggled to to keep pace with her, and she was a really kind of fiery personality, really cheeky, irreverent, and and also kind of quick with her fists when she needed to be. She she did get into punch ups at, in these places as well, but um, she was also uh, from quite early in her career as a as a can can dancer. She was paired with another woman. Uh, called Lucienne Beurs, who is better known as Gris d'Egout, which means sewer grate. The name is because she had gappy teeth. (laughs) And and Gris d'Egout was kind of the foil because uh, La Goulou was this kind of voluptuous, fair-haired, feisty, uh, explosive character, you know, really kind of effervescent when she was dancing. And and, and Gris d'Egout was very measured and she was ladylike and she was dark haired and she was a very different style but pairing the two together worked really uh, worked really well for both of them and so they got uh, engagements to dance together in in a lot of venues as well so she's there dancing in various cabarets around Montmartre and other parts of Paris what else was she doing to make money in those early years so she had also been working as uh, an artist's model. They would have spotted her. The artists that, that were living and working in Montmartre or in the, the dance halls would have spotted her uh, performing. She posed for photographs, uh, clothed and not. Uh, so that was another way for people to consume a performer's image or to be able to, to recognise her and she also had uh, gotten her, her younger sister, Victorine, in on the act. So her sister had also had posed for artists um, and there are surviving paintings of her. Was the assumption back then, Will, that if a woman was, you know, taking her clothes off for an artist or to be photographed and, and being paid to be a dancer, was the assumption that she was also a sex worker in, in some way? And was that true? Yeah, the the line between what was respectable and what was not. It was very porous. There were always the assumptions that to be a model, it paid all right, but the potential reputation damage was always uh, a lingering issue. So was the fact that in some of these ateliers, the artists' studios, they were known to take liberties with their models. So yes, there there might have been sex and so on. It wasn't always necessarily consensual. Um to be in a dance hall was sometimes seen as not entirely, shall we say, uh, you know, where respectable women might go because also these spaces were shared with sex workers who used to solicit. Um, she was really behind the eight ball in terms of assumptions because a lot of, a lot of things sort of link back to sex work. The idea that, well, she was working class and she was from Clichy, so does that mean that uh, she's a sex worker because the the areas full of criminals and, and prostitutes and whatnot, she's in the dance halls. Does that mean that she's supplementing her income as a sex worker, as, along with insinuations that the can-can was, was a really sort of suggestive or lascivious dance and the stories about her perhaps um, accidentally or on purpose losing her her um, undergarments while she danced <laughs> or, you, or, you know, when women danced without them, perhaps. Did she write about that in her diaries? Is there any evidence that you found that she was also taking money for sex or is it is it too blurry to know from this distance? 
it's it's blurry, but I don't believe that she was because there are no real. She doesn't talk about anybody who who would have been a wealthy benefactor or or anything like that. She had one aristocratic lover. Uh, and when they went away for a little trip to the seaside and she said they slept in separate beds and then she actually got bored and she went back to Paris. So that was the end of him. Uh, but I think she was far too kind of stubborn and bolshy to um, be a, a courtesan or, or anybody's mistress. And I think she was much more determined to earn money on her own terms and to be independent because this was also in an age where financial independence for women was much trickier um, and you know legally women were legally classed as minors uh, and basically under the control of a husband or a father which also meant that there were issues around uh, financial control she did have a relationship while she was still just in her teens with a man called Tanzini how did that that relationship end up in court? Uh, so their relationship lasted about three and a half years, uh, but it became abusive. It got to such a point that she pressed charges and stuck by it. And I think part of the the reason why she did that and she stuck to her guns was because her family was in danger because her sister, was a, her sister Victorine, was a teen mum. Louise helped raise Victorine's son, Louis, and she had them come to live with her. And Charlot, so it's like Charlie, Tadzini got possessive and resentful. And he didn't like the fact that the the kid was there. And he didn't like the fact that she had also eclipsed him as the primary earner. She Because they'd met when she was just starting off as a dancer. And then her star had really ascended. And he grew resentful of of her earning power and her successes. And so he had stolen things from her. He was physically abusive. He had then tried to break into their home. And so she... He tattooed that was when she, her as well, didn't he? Yes. Well, what's yeah, that story? He, yeah, so he had tattooed her, apparently. She, she wrote that he tattooed on her, uh, basically, I love Charlotte forever. And she said that she then tried to cover it by sort of uh, by tattooing over it and sort of trying to cover it with a flower with a pansy but you know eventually she um she threw him out she took him to court and um made the newspapers because she was already so this is 1886 well before she's appearing on on Lautrec's posters um she's only 20 wouldn't she yeah, be in, in that yeah, 20 she, and she took him to court at age 20 it's incredible yeah and i mean there was a lot happening around that same period. So, you know, she was helping to raise a newborn. Her mother died. She got rid of her her boyfriend and also had the, the court case, which also which then meant that her name was being dragged through the press and, and sullied, if you like. I mean, it, it's also, we, we've seen the same thing with so many uh, celebrity kind of divorce cases or assault cases this century, it still happens, you know, and, and so people saying, well, again, it goes back to the assumption that she was a sex worker and people saying, oh, you know, she's a tart and she deserves it or that's what you get for living the way that you do and all of these things. And, and sometimes it became, it's it was like she was the one that was on trial. Her reputation was the thing that people got stuck on. But at the same time, when when... Tetsini was finally convicted, only a month in prison. But know, he was for, convicted. They found he, they found him yeah, guilty. He was, um, which is perhaps also noteworthy. But um, then he immediately kind of went into this, oh, poor me, but what am I going, what's to become of me and all of this kind of thing. And, I mean, she did have some support because he was booed in the courtroom. It became a real media circus, you know, people going to, to watch and see you know, all of the sordid details of her personal life. And and throughout her life, she was basically always in the press and there, it was either the newspapers following a scandal or a court case or, or talking about the jewellery that she wore and the appearances that she made for, for carnivals and, and events and, and, you know, <clears throat> singing her praises and talking about her successes as a as a performer, not just as a can-can dancer, but throughout. 
So, Will, La Galoo was already a big star uh, when Moulin Rouge opened in 1889 and so they nabbed her as one of the one of the lead performers. What kind of place was this new cabaret? What did it offer its patrons? It was um, a little bit of everything sort of rolled into one in terms of the entertainments that were there and what was kind of popular in Paris. It had a variety performances, the musicians, the can-can dancing. There was a performing flatulist. There I'm sorry. Were, <laughs> yeah, there was a, a guy who uh, called Le Petoman, which means something like fartomaniac, and he could do impersonations, he could blow out candles, he could uh, perform the Marseillaise. Um <laughs> So, you know, there were those sorts. and so you know, many were, talents that have yeah, not he, continued in, in popular culture. Well, no, maybe they I, have. I'm just not aware of them. <laughs> look, maybe in certain establishments. But um, so, you know, there, there were people like that and, and sort of variety singers. And some of those performers then went on uh, to become very famous as well, women like Yvette Gilbert, who was also depicted in a number of, of Lautrec works. There were belly dancers. There were donkey rides in the garden. So they had a garden, which also was not... A lot of these things were kind of not remarkable on their own, but the Moulin sort of took it further and bigger and flashier and harder and faster than than, than other venues. And they also, a lot of the, the performers, the particularly the dancers, were kind of headhunted or brought in because they were already famous, because they had already been working with the management. So Charles Ziedler and Joseph Ollier were the two who were running the venue and they they had a, an, a, already an established working relationship with people like La Goulou. She'd been dancing at their venues for a couple of years already. And so everybody knew everybody in that regard. I mean, there, there were sort of new new faces being brought in as well, of course, but the nature of the venue was they had sort of the public dance hall, they had sideshows, they, they also had sort of games and attractions and themed spaces. The idea of a themed venue or a themed space was very much in vogue at that time. And it was also 1889, by the time the Moulin Rouge opened, they'd come to the end of the Universal Exhibition, which had been a great sort of display of art and architecture and performance and, and things like people watching. And the people that, that visited the Moulin were from all over the world. It was not necessarily kind of always the bohemian sort of hideaway that that people imagine it to be. But the positioning of it is at the bottom of the hill of Montmartre, but it's sort of away from the centre of Paris, but it's also not quite right up the top of the hill. So it's in this kind of buffer zone between sort of the respectable and the illicit. And it was somewhere that the bourgeoisie could visit without necessarily worrying about you know being mugged, like if they went to some of the other dance halls elsewhere in the same district. It became synonymous with the can-can, or it's seen that way now. Did that dance exist before the Moulin Rouge opened? Yeah, well before. I mean, some people will trace it back to the French Revolution. Certainly there are references in the 1820s to the can-can or, or, you know, different names for it. But it had kind of evolved through the century and, and had moments where it kind of fell in or out of fashion. And then in the the 1880s, there was this explosion of the dance hall scene. And, you know, what we call the can-can was sometimes called the show, which means uproar. Uh, sometimes it was called a, a cadre, and it was either like the the realist realist uh, quadri or the naturalist quadri. And often that was danced uh, with pairs of men and women. And certainly earlier in her career, La Goulou was dancing with Gridegou and then two male dancers, one of whom was sometimes a fellow called Valentin Le Désossé, which means the boneless for his flexibility. <laughs> and he, he also, he appears in silhouette on the Lautrec poster. But gradually, one of the big sort of changes was male dancers of the Cancan were the exception rather than the rule. And certainly the, the troupe of women really came to predominate. And they were also better paid than a lot of the men. What did La Goulou wear when, when she danced the can-can? Sometimes she wore a, a floor-length 
dress. Sometimes it was shorter, but it's um, layers of uh, petticoats and lace and ruffles on the under underside. Um, so that you know, in the process of dancing and, and kicking up her legs, there were all of these flashes of the uh, the undergarments. There's also a story that she had a heart embroidered on the seat of her drawers. There was a a dance move that's called the the bum flash, and so the dancer sort of turns around and hitches her skirts over her head and and flashes the audience. And so the the story was that this heart was visible, um, but she also you know, less sort of mm, explicit, I suppose, is is the fact that she was permitted to dance without a hat. Generally, <laughs> the dancers wore they wore hats, they wore headdresses, they wore wigs, but she, as evidence of who she was and and uh, the fact that she could kind of get her own way, she didn't have to wear a hat. She also didn't have to wear a hat when she was kind of out in company. She said, "I could walk into places and they let me in because I'm la Gulu and it doesn't matter that I don't have my hat on." Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. What happened when the Prince of Wales, the future Edward VII, came and, and saw La Goulou perform? One of the stories is that... Uh, he he turned up to watch her and, and he sometimes travelled incognito and she knew who he was and she used to sort of call out to him and, and uh, uh, rib him a little bit. But at one point he turned up and she called out to him words to the effect of, are you paying for the champagne or is it on your mother's account? <laughs> that still stands, that joke. <laughs> yeah, um, you could still use it. And And on another occasion he had, there was this sort of, secret, if you like, plan. He was a great uh, Francophile, the, the Prince of Wales, and, and he regularly travelled to, to Paris. And so he visited a lot of the, the dance halls and the theatres and the brothels and all sorts of different places. So at one point he was meant to be kind of, not incognito, but it was a secret that he was visiting. And so there was this great sort of hubbub in the dressing rooms at the Moulin Rouge, and it was Everybody was was really anxious. You know, the dancers were getting into little kind of fights because the nerves, everybody's nerves were a little bit frayed and they wanted everything to be perfect. And Lagoulou was perfectly quiet, perfectly silent. And the time came, the prince wasn't there. The evening wore on, he wasn't there, he wasn't there. People had sort of warned Lagoulou, best behaviour, they'd, you know, read the riot act to the dancers and all the rest of it. The night's getting away, he eventually shows up and then this voice kind of bellows across the hall, what time do you call this? Were you meant to be coming today or tomorrow? And it's <laughs> La Goulou. And there she, she shouts out to him and then she just sort of sailed down the stairs to the dance floor as if nothing had ever happened with all of the you know, kind of quaking stage managers behind her. But this was the thing, you know, she was she was not, you know, from a, an aristocratic background, but she had this auteur about her and and we can sort of see in a lot of these works she carries herself in such a way you know, her head's up her shoulders are back she sometimes it's also kind of read as as disdain she is singularly unimpressed by all of the fuss that goes on around her and she again you know she's sort of she's cheeky and she's not taking it overly seriously so, Will, you've described the way that La Goulou was the subject of, of many paintings and posters from that era, including famously by Toulouse-Lautrec. And it's interesting looking at those artworks and also of the surviving photographs of La Goulou. She's not a classical beauty in any way, and she looks nothing like the, the Moulin Rouge dancers look now, who are all these blonde glamazons. No, absolutely. People sometimes said that she was beautiful and some people said, well, she's not exactly beautiful, but she does have something about her. And other people were maybe less complimentary. And I, I think it also kind of comes back to her her manner because she, she was such a, a sort of feisty character. And it almost feels like there are people who were rhapsodizing, you know, about how, how gorgeous she is, you know, the fair hair and the the milky skin and the bosom and all the rest of it. 
What kind of money was she making uh, while she was working at the Moulin Rouge, I guess, at the, the height of her public career? Some sources say she was earning as much as sort of 3,700 francs in about a month. In her diary, she said that I think it was 600 to 800 francs. But if you consider that, you know, as a laundress, she was earning two francs 50 and, and you know, to go from that to several hundred. And on top of her, her dancing at the Moulin Rouge, she was dancing at other venues. So she would have been making maybe similar money there. She was hired or engaged for private performances for maybe a, a more a smaller audience. And what was she spending this this fortune on? She was helping to look after her family. She took in animals before she became an animal tamer. She still had a menagerie, but it was uh, cats and dogs and birds. And she turned up to uh, rehearsals with a goat on a leash. Um, <laughs> she had a a cow that she rescued that I think, you know, it was probably headed for the knacker's yard or something. She took it in and she said it followed her like it was a dog. So what, not um, diamonds or, or carriages, oh, just cows and goats? Oh, she did have a carriage. She had a carriage and she had horses and she had servants at one point or another. But, you know, she, she didn't necessarily, I think, aspire to living in, you know, moving, moving into the most uh, exclusive neighbourhoods. But really, she, it was much more prosaic. She she said in her diary, by 26, I'd made my fortune. And she, I think, was sort of helping people around her. Did mm. she have any children of her own? She did, but not until later. She had her son, Simon, when she was just shy of uh, 30. But certainly from, from what I've found in terms of the, the extant documentation, there are uh, uh, babies that that she lost, and and part of it could have been sort of the the demands of dancing the can can. There was at least one dancer who died from performing it. So she was really a huge star dancing at the Moulin Rouge and and other venues. Why did she leave the Moulin Rouge? I think that these uh, miscarriages or stillbirths were were part of it. I think one of the dancers had died. She had had problems of her own and she recognized that she couldn't dance the can-can forever and so what she was trying to do was stay abreast of what was kind of current and what could be the next big money spinner so she went into belly dancing which <laughs> orientalism and and sort of the allure of of that sort of spectacle was was very much in at the time and she took a little bit of a hiatus when she had her child, because I think really that was one of the things she she wanted to have her family around her. She wanted to have a family of her own, and um, that was part of the the impetus, I think, for the reinvention. So she goes from the can can to belly dancing. How did animal training become her next great career focus? She had appeared as I think it was like a one off, you know, a guest appearance in in the cage of an animal tamer called Adrien Peson, who was part of a dynasty. Of, he was the second generation of animal tamers and his siblings and his aunts and cousins, uncles and cousins and his father were all, all in the same line. But So she'd performed with them as a, a kind of special treat, special appearance. And then the idea kind of returned once she was performing with the belly dancing and, and her what she called her oriental concert. It was on the same circuit as a lot of the animal tamers. And so when she was performing at one show, her her booth was, I think, sort of opposite one animal tamer and next door to another. And so kind of gave her the idea. Eventually, it wasn't an immediate thing. And how do you go it, about it, setting yourself up as an animal trainer, Will? I mean, you've, you've got to get a lion or, or a tiger or something like yeah, that. And I so, guess you've got to learn how to handle them, which... Which isn't something most people have had much experience of. I assume I assume Louise hadn't met too many lions around the streets of Montmartre. Possibly. But um <laughs> she started off in partnership with Adrien Peson. So he took her on and trained her. It was a duo, uh, initially, but then when there was an auction of animals, Peson menagerie, she turned up and, and that was how she, she started off 
with with her own. And what animals act. did she buy in that auction? She had lions, some of whom she'd worked with before. So one of the things that again made the news there was this big auction of of animals, and so it was snakes and monkeys and lions and bears and whatever. And so she bought one of the lionesses, and she turned up looking very fashionable, sort of irreproachably ladylike in at, at the auction. And she saw this lion and she went, oh, I know her. She's just a kitten. And she she bid on the animal. And once she realised she'd won, she kind of, you know, punched the air and leapt over the barrier and went straight to the cage and was kind of cooing and nuzzling this lioness <laughs> through the bars of the cage. And the, the lioness recognised her and was kind of trying to curl up with her as well. But she, her, her menagerie kind of fluctuated over time. The, the animals kind of rotated. But she had lions and lionesses. She had, uh, at, at different points, uh, pumas, uh, a, an orangutan uh, called Mayor that she did a sort of stage show with. Uh, and the, the monkey, ba- the, the, the ape was sort of dressed up in a little outfit and used to perform tricks and say please and thank you and that sort of thing. She had monkeys at another point. She had raccoons. She did an act with uh, a pair of snakes around her. And that was probably kind of going off, riffing off uh, another animal tamer, a woman called Numa Hawa, who performed with one snake. And so Lagulu kind of went, well, <laughs> anything you can do. And so she she performed with, with a pair of them. Um, Were there porcupines and, involved as well? well look, eventually. The, the porcupines came sort of at a later date when her, her, her menagerie was dwindling. Um, I mean, you know. But again, it was on rotation. Like she had a lion and a kangaroo at one point. Where would they? Or have she all, just had the where, porcupines. Where would she have kept them all? I mean, presumably they weren't living in her apartment with her. Where does one keep an orangutan and a lion and a and a snake? Well, so um, the orangutan slept in her bed with her, <laughs> and she basically—it's like Michael Jackson and Bubbles. <laughs> oh you know, she had she had this dressed. Uh, Mayor was dressed and sitting on her hip, and you know. Journalists came to interview her and, and Mayo answered the door. But she was living in a caravan at that point because she was kind of an ambulant performer. She was travelling either around Paris or around France uh, to to do her, her shows. So it's kind of like the travelling circus, um, you know, the, the old old style travelling circus where there were kind of wheeled cages and caravans and this whole sort of troupe of animals and handlers and so on. She wasn't doing all of this necessarily on her own. And she she did have kind of dynastic ambitions, I think, to turn it into a family affair. And some of the families still are involved in the, the funfair circuit in Belgium today. Hmm. But she Lagoulou would have been much more mobile than when she was uh, a can-can dancer. What costume did she wear as, as a lion tamer? She went through a couple. When she started, it was kind of grey and, and she wore like um, a, a leotard sort of trousers um, with a, a jacket. And it's interesting that she wore trousers because that wasn't necessarily a given or, or you know, other women who were animal tamers, they sometimes wore like a shorter skirt or Numahawa wore a, a kind of corset-like Outfit, so she was still hyper feminine. Whereas you look at Lagulu and what she wore, she had the grey outfit, and then she had to get rid of that after she was attacked by Siberian wolves, and it got kind of shredded. And then later on, she had a red outfit, red a uh, red top with epaulets. And if you see the photos, it's it's a kind of military looking thing, in sort of knee high boots with these with with trousers on. Um, and then when she was attacked by one of her animals, one of her lions, she kept it. It was completely ruined. She could never wear it, but she kept this blood-stained costume that she then sort of framed and hung up. It's like, you know, Shroud of Turin <laughs> merchandise. But, you know, it was so that people could see this this thing. And she put it on on ads and, and posters. And so there were um, artworks covering them. The booth that said, you know, she wasn't eaten. You know, come and see the, the lion that couldn't, that didn't eat Lagulu or whatever. And <laughs> and then later on, she had this outfit with a train. Tell me about different. this near death experience with one of her lions with Negus. What happened? So she she basically 
was going through the act where he was supposed to jump over her. She was going to jump in, drop into the splits. So again, there's still this kind of can-can element. She sometimes danced with her animals. But so she was meant to drop into the splits and he was meant to leap. And then um, he got spooked. And so he attacked her. He bit her skull and the nape of her neck and she'd ended up sort of clawed and she ended, she had a very serious injury to her arm. Did someone have I, to to pull her out of there or, or how yeah, was she Yeah, it took a killed? few people. She And the, so she basically played dead uh, and... She was she was married at the time, so her husband and and other people who were present sort of pried the line. She said there were soldiers in the audience with bayonets, and so that was kind of good luck, maybe more than good management. But eventually, the line was pulled off her. But then um, once once that happened, you know, everybody's sort of in a state of shock, and then she propped herself up and she went, I'm all right, I can sort myself, you know, it's don't need to... wound. Yeah, pretty much. And she, I can sort myself out. And so she she washed her own wounds and then was taken to hospital and, and the recovery was really quite difficult because, it, you know, she had sort of night terrors and fever and pain and there was the need for trepanning her skull. Um, so, you know, there were all sorts of dramas, but publicly facing... She had a, a sort of lightness of touch about it. She didn't. She didn't let on. Uh, but also, it. She had to rescue other people, or she had to rescue her husband uh, sometimes as well. You know, one of her pumas attacked her husband, and she had to shoot the the animal point blank, um, which she she mentioned in her diary. You know, she was not best pleased about the fact that she had to. Uh, but again, you know, she. She made the news when things went wrong, but also people talking about sort of the intrepid animal tamer or, or you know, her, her adventures, her misadventures. Would have made, uh, made the Moulin Rouge seem quite tame, I guess. Uh, this is the thing. Yeah, the, the, her time at the Moulin Rouge was only a couple of years. And in the scheme of her whole career, it's actually only a really small period. But dancing the can-can is kind of the boring part of of her career, which helps sort of give you an idea of what, what she got up to. <laughs> what happened near the end of her life, Will, if she managed to reinvent herself, it seems, uh, successfully as an animal tamer and a, and the, the, the forefront of a line of gypsy caravans making their way around France and uh, surviving lion attacks and, and the rest of it. How did she spend her final years? She always tried to keep her hand in one way or another and remain active as a performer, perhaps less regularly. Certainly kind of around the years of the First World War, there was a, a change and she was doing other sidelines. She she had a uh, a gingerbread stall. She was selling during the war. She was selling cocard, you know, tricolour um, merchandise to kind of uh, support the war effort and, and all of that sort of thing. She... Um, she was often in the press, people kind of getting nostalgic and looking for her to get interviews about the good old days. There was a rumour that she died in 1918, and so she went storming into a newspaper, That you went storming into the office and said, I'll show you if she's dead, and she used it as a PR thing, so then she went into stage performing and she was in a review where she made a joke about, oh, no, Guru, I thought you were dead, and then she sort of she does a dance to, to prove that she is definitely not dead. And she she was sort of in and out, but then her son died before her, and I think that set her off that on on a a bit more of a rapid downward trajectory. But you know, she still had to earn a living, so she took on odd jobs, and what, she had a barrow. Her, and what about her fortune, though? Will I mean, twenty six? She said she'd made millions. Why did she need to still make money at this point? It it was gone by then. Um, she I I think. Part of it was that she was too generous, uh, and people often assume that she she'd spent it all, and it's a kind of ant and grasshopper story. And certainly in the press, that was sometimes how it was described. But I think she had put her money into her ventures, and you know, lions are not cheap to look after. And she was saying, you know, the amount that I had to spend on meat every single day, and the amount that she had to spend on coal, particularly. Uh, you know, in in the colder months, to for every to keep the whole 
of you know herself and the menagerie warm she i think gave very freely to other people some of her her jewels were stolen uh her son stole from her as well i think he was probably hitting her up for money as well mm. but then he he also had stolen some of her jewels her remaining jewels and and money to cover gambling debts and things like that so you know bit by bit by bit it just uh dwindled away um but even when she was uh living sort of in in a slum district in a caravan that had seen better days she was still kind of taking in animals and still looking for a way to uh make money and and you know be active as a performer but also look after people she said she always had stew on the stove for people who were less well off than herself <laughs> how did lagulu end up back at the moulin rouge right at the end of her life so she, one of the other things that she was doing was uh selling nuts or she had a barrow sometimes it was a vegetable barrel or whatever but when she had sometimes also the the nuts or knickknacks or sweets or flowers or whatever so she had sort of a a, a tray that's uh hung around her neck and she used to go with these trays of nuts or sweets or whatever it was to uh different night spots or along the streets in Montmartre so she she got back into the Moulin Rouge towards the end of her life because of that people almost didn't let her in but then she you know she was sort of a little bit like if you go out sometimes and there are people who sell roses and and mm-hmm. uh different bits and pieces to to tourists and so on and and she was doing that as as one of her jobs and she you know she she was still kind of in the same places that she had grown up and spent so much of her life and and still inspiring artists while she was at it there there were illustrations and and different works uh by people who spotted her and they didn't necessarily realize who she was mm. but she still obviously had a a certain something about her but you know she she was sort of always on the go and still in the same districts that, you, that she knew do you see that as a kind of a tragic end that she ends up back at the moulin rouge but there as as just scraping by selling nuts or flowers from a tray rather than as the star of the cabaret yeah it's it's kind of unfortunate but she also said herself she never lost courage so she was always quite upbeat about all of these things and it's still i mean she did get her swan song at the moulin because uh she was spotted um i think it might have been by uh Marie Chevalier <laughs> and so this kind of newer generation of performers they they that still kind of recognized and remembered her she was brought in and there was a review uh and and they said okay and we have a special guest and she was brought up on stage and everybody gave her this one big kind of last hurrah round of applause um and then uh, she also appeared in a silent film shortly before she died and it's exactly the same so you know it 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 does sound really sad and really unfortunate that you know she was living in such reduced circumstances but she never let it get her down and she certainly never publicly let it get her down and so you know as soon as she saw these these people with the camera she was on she you know people say oh you know she was decrepit and she couldn't walk in a straight line she danced for them a little bit she you can tell she's well put together she's striking a pose you can it's silent but she you can see she's bossing everyone around <laughs> and she's you know hitching up her skirt a little bit and she that that memory it just um is still absolutely there and she snaps back into into sort of sassy dancer mode um <laughs> so when you see that sort of thing it's less of a tragedy i mean the perhaps the what killed her in the end is the the most unfortunate thing because it was um cervical cancer and you know to be on limited means and and you know perhaps not quite knowing what was going on but declining um and and then uh you know to um to die sort of in hospital and and in that way but uh she got a, a decent send off um her neighbors dressed her in her old uh animal taming costume with the train <laughs> and 
you know, there were reeds and, and things, nothing from the Moulin Rouge, which people did notice and comment on. But it's also the, the idea that she didn't die because she was a hopeless alcoholic. Um, she wasn't buried in a pauper's grave. She had a, a little plot with a, her head, uh, the, the marker on her grave said, here lies Louise Weber, muse of Toulouse-Lautrec. And so she was in Pontin when she was first buried and then in the early 90s moved to where she is now in the Cimetière de Montmartre where she's on the kind of famous graves map. She's one of the celebrities in that cemetery and she her grave is never really without without gifts, without flowers, without attention. I'm sure she would would approve of that. Absolutely. She she said uh, to someone, you know you've been someone when you've been La Goulou. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> well, thank you so much for opening my eyes to this woman. I knew nothing about it. It is um, an amazing story to hear. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you. Will Visconti was my guest on Conversations today, and his book is Beyond the Moulin Rouge. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Patrick Stack, and what I love about Conversations is the storytelling. We're trying to bring you a piece of that in our new podcast, ABC Sport Daily. It could drive him to neuroses if he didn't have that balance in his life. Each episode, we're going to give you the full story behind sport's biggest stories. Clarkson is obviously number one on everyone's wish list right now. We're talking to people in the know about stories you'll want to know. He's trying to retrain his brain so that doesn't happen overnight. It's seriously good, but we won't take ourselves too seriously. I know we hate talking about it, Stacky, but that's what the Queensland spirit is. One story each day in under 15 minutes. ABC Sport Daily, your daily sports conversation.